Good morning. Hope you all had a good uh, night last night and a good rising this morning. Good. Very good. Excellent. Well, last night, um, what I'd hoped to do was introduce the idea of greatness um, and to say that our models for Christian greatness are the saints. Uh, the second thing I, I hoped that last night did was to uh, encourage us to pray because at the heart of the greatness of the saints is their experience of God's love for them. And so if we're going to seek our vocation to holiness, then we also need to know that love of God for us, not just in our minds, not just intellectually, but to experience it in our hearts. This morning, what I'd like to do is to try to explore more deeply uh, this idea of greatness, especially greatness from the Christian perspective. And um, what I'd like to do is start uh, with a story. Um, as I was preparing uh, these conferences, I was reminded of a time I was giving a talk to a group of college students. They were on a retreat. Uh, it was probably about um, five years ago or so, and to be frank with you, I can't remember the topic of the talk. In fact, I can't even remember the point I was trying to make. So you might be thinking, well, I mean, Father Paul, if you can't remember the topic or the point, why are you telling us the story? Uh, good question. Uh, the reason is because what's important is not what I said, but what the students said. Um, for some reason, I was asking them what, um, as small children, were their life's dreams? What was it that they wanted to be when they grew up? And so they responded with things you might expect. A cowboy, an astronaut, a princess, a professional baseball player, those kind of things. So then I asked them, well, okay, now you're in your late teens and early 20s, like, what are your dreams now? And so they responded, one said a lawyer, another a doctor, another accountant. And then to the student who had said that as a small girl she wanted to be a princess, I said to her, Sharon, it's not her name, but we'll call her that, Sharon, um, what do you want to be now? And she looked at me and she said, oh, Father Paul, I still want to be a princess. And I was taken aback. Uh, taught me not to ask students questions like that. But no, I was startled. But then as I thought about it for a moment, I said to her, Sharon, that's great. You are right on target. And why was it that Sharon hit the bullseye? Because she knows her identity. That by baptism, we have become adopted sons and daughters of God. Jesus is a king. That makes us princes and princesses. That is the reality, sisters. You know, uh, I heard, I don't follow um, uh, news, you know, like social news all that much, but I know that Prince William of England got married a few months ago. I heard he and... Uh, his wife, Kate, came to L.A. 
Kate, yeah. Yeah, they came and visited LA. Um, I don't know if Sharon heard that news um, or if she knows that William's brother, Prince Harry, is still eligible. <laughs> but whether she ends up marrying into that royal family or not, she is royalty because of her relationship with Christ. She is a princess, and so are you. And I was reminded of that incident, as I said, when I was preparing these confidence conferences, because, sisters, if we're called to greatness, it's because we were born for greatness. I don't know if you um, are familiar with um, the Narnia Chronicles, um, a series of seven children's fantasy novels that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, and they present the adventures of children from our world who play central roles as kings and queens in the unfolding history of the fictional realm of Narnia. Uh, they're considered classics of children's literature. Um, since they were first published in the 1950s, they've sold over 100 million copies, and they've been translated into 47 languages. Um, in the last few years, the first three episodes at least, I don't know, maybe more, but at least the first three have been turned into full-length motion pictures. And, you know, I, I thought to myself, why do they endure, or why do they enjoy such enduring popularity? I mean, 60 years old, 100 million copies, all these different translations. I think it has to do because they resonate with something deep within the human spirit. And that is that we do have a royal streak within us. We were born for greatness. Um, Sigmund Freud said that one of the primary motives from which everything human beings do is the desire to be great. Um, John Dewey, uh, American philosopher, psychologist, and education reformer, the Dewey Decimal System. He said that the deepest urge in human nature is the desire to be important. Um, I don't know a lot about either man's writings. I imagine I wouldn't agree with them on everything. I know I uh, disagree with Freud on his religious perspective. But I do think they've got their finger on something. They're on to something when they emphasize the importance in human beings of the urge for greatness. Um, I think we get it from our parents. And I don't mean so much Frank and Rose Helfrich or your immediate parents, but I mean our first parents, Adam and Eve. If you go back and you look at the book of Genesis, you'll see that God gives to Adam and Eve dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all the living things that move on the earth. Adam and Eve were called by God to reign over creation. They were to be its king and queen. The cause of their fall was not in them wanting to reign, but in desiring to do it apart from God. We, their descendants, have been born with royal blood. And so I think we've never lost that desire to be important. Uh, I asked a, um, a former college student, I got to know her when she was in college, if I could share with you a story that she told me about herself. And 
Uh, I'll tell it to you in a minute, but, but I first wanted to let you know something about what she wrote in an email when she responded to my request. So I emailed her and said, X, you know, I'm giving this retreat. I remember you shared with me this story. Here's what I remember of it. Are you okay if I share it on this retreat? So she emails me back. Um, and uh, after she confirmed, yes, what you said about the facts, that, that's, that's all accurate, she said, and I quote, feel free to use the story. I am super honored. And then she adds that when I tell the story, quote, just make me sound super cool. <laughs> okay, I mean, she was kidding, but only half kidding. Um, and because, in a sense, we all want to appear, you know, in, in a positive light and important, or in her words, you know, we all want to seem like super cool to other people. Um, I, I don't know, it just touches on, I think, what I'm trying to get at. We all have an inborn desire to do great things or to have our lives be important. And I think it's because God did really, we were born for greatness. Okay, here's her story. Um, as I said, she's a former student. I got to know her when she came to college. She majored in theater. Um, and once she shared with me how she came to be interested in acting. She said she, when she was eight years old, her parents took her to a theatrical performance. And she said, we sat in the front row of a balcony section. So there was like a railing there. Um, and because of her age and height, she couldn't see over the railing. So she said, the usher came and brought me a pillow. She said, a red pillow. And she said, I sat on it and I felt like a princess kind of common theme. Um, that, that's not the point of the story, but I was just struck, okay, yeah, this princess theme is uh, going through here. Anyway, at the end of her, the performance, her parents said to her, how did you like it? And she said, it was good, but I could do better. <laughs> oh, okay. No problem with confidence in this kid. Well, for the next six months, she begs her parents to let her become an actress. And they keep trying to divert her attention, I guess because, you know, how many actors or actresses really make it or, you know, potentially the moral challenges in that field, whatever it is, they keep trying to steer her in other directions. Well, one day, she's home from school, whatever, day off or something, and she gets out the phone book and she calls an acting agency. And the reception, so she's about nine now, uh, so the receptionist answers the phone, and this nine-year-old girl tells her, I'm interested in becoming an actress. Can you help me? So the receptionist asks her, dear, um, how old are you? And she's like, I'm nine. And she says, does your mother know you're calling? And she was like, no. <laughs> well, can I talk to your mother? I think her mother was like a, a real estate agent, so I think she may have had an office like in the home or anything. And anyway, so she goes and gets her mother. So um, her mother gets on the line, the receptionist identifies herself and asks her, do you realize that your daughter is calling, asking us to help her become an actress? So the mother is like mortified, you know, apologizing profusely, I'm sorry, it'll never happen again, I'll talk to my daughter. And so finally when the mother finishes, the receptionist says to her, well, actually, um, we were hoping we could interview your daughter. And by that point, the parents see the handwriting on the wall 
and they take their daughter in, and she gets interviewed, and that sets her on the path to where I met her when she was undergrad in college studying acting, theater performance. Um, she uh, graduated and um, went on to work for a couple years with a prestigious Shakespeare company, and now she is pursuing a major, or a master's in acting at Yale. Um, I, I share it because um, uh, not only do I think, yeah, she is super cool. I mean, I've seen her act. I don't know anything about acting, but she seems pretty good. But um, I think some people, um, well, I, I think it illustrates for me, all of us have this impulse for greatness. All of us have this desire to have our lives be important. Some people are more bold, maybe, in speaking about it or pursuing it, but we all have it. We're all born with it. So it's not really so much a question of trying to achieve something that's beyond us, as really it is embracing someone that we were really born to be. Uh, it seems to me that people handle this desire in one of two ways. One is that they follow the avenues for greatness as they interpret it around them. Uh, for many people, that means feeding their ambition, um, succumbing to pride, self-centeredness, sometimes compromising on their morals in order to achieve it. I know this young woman has situations where she had to turn down offers because it would uh, violate her, her morals. So on the one hand, people pursue this desire by following what they see around them, the people that are generally considered great. Uh, other people, I think, uh, address the impulse by trying to suppress it. They try to convince themselves that somehow I'm not really made for greatness, whatever may be true of other people, or that pursuing it would be somehow incompatible with being Christian. Um, I'd like to propose to you a third way, and that is to recognize that the urge for greatness is something that God has given us but that the way we so often understand greatness or pursue it may, in fact, need to be corrected or purified. In um, chapter 9 of Mark's Gospel, Mark writes that the disciples came to Capernaum, and once inside the house, Jesus began to ask them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. And Mark adds, they had been discussing among themselves on the way who was the greatest. And then Jesus sat them down, sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last of all and the servant of all. Um, what's so striking to me about this incident is that when Jesus calls them together and it comes into the light, they're arguing about who's the greatest. He doesn't rebuke them for having their urge to greatness. He doesn't say that desire is wrong. Uh, root it out. Suppress it. Rather, he takes the opportunity to summon his disciples to understand and pursue what he considers as true greatness. And he does it by turning upside down the prevailing view of greatness of his day. He says to them, don't take as your models 
the great ones, the secular rulers who see authority as a means of self-exaltation. Uh, their focus is on uh, the benefits and the opportunities that come to them from being in a great position, the opportunity to throw their weight around. Um, the prevalent attitude of that day, I think, was uh, well summed up in the words of the Roman Emperor Galba. You probably have never heard of him. Um, his predecessor, I imagine you have, that's Nero. Uh, so Nero was Galba's immediate predecessor. Um, Galba took over uh, the empire in 68 AD. Just coincidentally, about almost exactly the same time that Mark is writing his gospel. Most scripture scholars put Mark's gospel somewhere between 64 and 70 AD. So Galba is the emperor. Um, he, I think, expressed the prevailing view of greatness by saying that as emperor, he could do what he liked and he could do it to anyone. Jesus overturns these expectations about rank and privilege for his disciples. He says, being first, being great, is not about throwing your weight around, but it's about serving others. After Jesus makes this response, what does he do? He presents a child before his disciples. And he says to them, in effect, this child is going to show you something about how status, greatness, rank in God's kingdom is so much different than it is in the world. Um, last evening, I mentioned that um, one aspect of um, being childlike is openness, especially in prayer with God, that kind of frankness and freedom to say what's really going on. I think another trait of children is that they're not influenced um, by the credentials that adults so often use to impress one another. Um, titles, uh, positions we hold, the amount of money we make, accomplishments, di diplomas we acquire. Uh, it seems to me that children are not impressed by those things. They just don't understand what that means. For children, what's paramount to them is love. Does this person care about me? Do they take care of me? Do they love me? That's what impresses children. Um, and coincidentally, it does with God. Um, another story. In um, May of 2006, um, Andrew Brash and Miles Osborne were attempting to climb Mount Everest with the assistance of two guides. On their last day of their ascent, they were already over 28,000 feet up. Um, so they were just 800 feet and two hours from the top of Mount Everest. As they were climbing, they saw a dot of colored fabric in the distance. Um, at first, they thought it was a tent. Um, as they got closer, they realized it wasn't a tent, it was an abandoned climber. He was an Australian named Lincoln Hall. Uh, Hall had made it to the top the day before. Um, on his way down, he became gravely ill from oxygen deprivation. 
and he had two guides with him who tried to help him, but thought that he was dead. So they left him, and they descended. Somehow, miraculously, Hall managed to survive a night in the open on the mountain. Doctors to this day cannot explain how he could have done it, but he did. So the Brash and Osborne team comes upon him. Um, as you can imagine, he's in bad shape. Um, in addition to oxygen deprivation, um, hypothermia, he's hallucinating. Um, they spent four hours taking care of him, including because he was so out of it, he would not like cooperate with them as they're trying to get him down. So they're fighting him even while they're trying to take care of him. He just, he's, he's as I say, he's hallucinating. He doesn't know what's going on. They're radioing for help. They're, they're trying to uh, take care of him. Uh, while they're working on him, they see two other climbers passing by a little bit off in the distance. So they shout over to them, asking them to come over and help. Those two beg off, indicating that they don't speak English. Um, maybe they didn't. But a little over a week earlier, another climber had died a thousand feet into his descent, while an estimated 40 other climbers passed him by. Anyway, by the time um, Brash and Osborne's team get Hall down to safety, as I said, even kind of fighting against him, fighting them, um, they're too exhausted to attempt the peak themselves. Their supplies are depleted. As I said, they've spent all this energy trying to, to help this man. Um, they couldn't wait for another day. It was the last day in which climbers would be allowed to um, attempt it, I guess because of the weather and the change of the seasons and whatever. Um, so they return without completing uh, reaching the summit. One of their guides, a man named Dan Mazur, said uh, that he had no regrets about it. He said, quote, you have only one life to live. If I had left that man to die, that would have been in my mind for the rest of my life. How could I live like that? Um, and in fact, Hall uh, survived um, and uh, lives uh, to this day. Um, the climbers who passed by, um, they're going to have their names in a book, maybe even etched into a monument somewhere that they, uh, they made it to the top of Mount Everest. Um, Brash and Osborne's team won't. But I imagine whatever is the legacy of the climbers who passed by, I think uh, the legacy in Christ's eyes of Brash and Osborne is going to be much more impressive. Um, not to mention in the eyes of the man whose life they saved. Um, so I guess the, the question is, who is the greatest on the mountain? The climbers who passed by and can point to their name in a book or on a monument somewhere, or Brash and Osborne who gave up um, this desire to accomplish this thing that so few people have done in order to help somebody who's in dire distress. You know, is it more impressive to say I climbed Mount Everest or I gave up my climb to save somebody's life? Um, just a couple uh, final thoughts. St. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, speaks of the surpassing greatness of God's power for us who believe. 
In other words, sisters, we have a great and immeasurable power at work in us. Why? Because God has made us for greatness. Um, Archbishop Gomez, in his um, comments on uh, the massive welcome here last May, uh, I think fills out this understanding of greatness that St. Paul talks about. When he said, quote, each of us have been made for great and beautiful things. There is no soul that God does not long to touch with this message of his love. And he wants to touch those souls through us. So let us make our lives something beautiful that we can offer to God. Let us do everything, even the littlest duties of our day out of love for him and for the love of our brothers and sisters. And so I guess uh, just kind of closing, sisters, I would encourage you, don't shrink from the call to greatness that God has put in us. And I admit that often enough the uh, expressions of greatness and the avenues to pursue it that we see around us are distorted. But that doesn't mean that the urge itself is also. The urge is from God. It's there because God's given it to us. So channel that urge to greatness by expressing it according to the Lord's mind and heart. Do as um, Mother Luisita, who Archbishop Gomez is quoting here, as they're encouraging us to do it. Pursue that greatness that God calls us to through the wholehearted love of God and others.